You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. There are all kinds of pernicious artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other um, systems that are touted as good, as uh, productive, as helpful, but do not provide reliable enough results um, to be useful, especially in areas of policing and other areas that, that impact human lives. Even if these systems were flawless, often the application of the systems, the use of them, is just there to uh, prop up the capitalist system, the police state, and other nefarious structures. This piece is written by John General and John Sarlin, is published at CNN.com. Patterson, New Jersey. In February 2019, Najir Parks walked into the Woodbridge Police Department to clear his name. Parks, a 31-year-old black man living in Patterson, New Jersey, had received a frantic phone call from his grandmother, telling him that police from Woodbridge, a town 30 miles away, had come looking for him at the apartment they shared. This was all a misunderstanding, he had thought. Parks had trouble with the law in his past, but that was behind him. Since being released from prison on drug-related charges, he had changed his life and was now working a steady job as a carpenter. Standing at the desk of the police station, holding an envelope with his social security card and identification, Parks was ready to clear his name. It wouldn't be so easy. Quote, Four or five minutes later, as me and the clerk were talking, two other officers walked up and tell me to put my hands behind my back, Parks recalled in an interview with CNN Business. He's like, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. The charges were serious. Aggravated assault, unlawful possession of weapons, using a fake ID, possession of marijuana, shoplifting, leaving the scene of a crime, resisting arrest. On top of that, Parks was accused of nearly hitting a police officer with a car. Detained by the Woodbridge police, Parks, whose arrest was first reported by NJ.com, said he spent 11 days in jail. 
Only upon his release was he able to learn what the evidence against him was. According to a police report obtained by CNN, the evidence presented by the police officers that led to Park's arrest was a, quote, high-profile comparison from a facial recognition scan of a photo from what was determined to be a fake ID left at the crime scene that witnesses connected to the suspect. The facial recognition match was enough for prosecutors and a judge to sign off on his arrest. What followed was a year-long legal nightmare for Parks, who faced years in prison and the potential of additional time due to his prior convictions. While facial recognition technology has become increasingly accurate, research has shown it is drastically more prone to error when trying to match the faces of darker-skinned people. And because no federal guidelines exist to limit or standardize the use of facial recognition by law enforcement, states, and more often municipalities, are left to decide for themselves what, if anything, to do to control its use. Virginia recently became the fifth state to curtail the use of facial recognition by police, while Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, and Boston are among the cities outlawing it. There are only a handful of known cases in which facial recognition has been used as the sole evidence in an arrest, and many police departments claim to use facial recognition for investigative leads only. However, according to some privacy advocates, the restrictions on facial recognition being presented as evidence are lax, and there is little transparency about how those matches are being used in criminal cases. Quote, When we talk about the number of facial recognition scans unfolding in the United States every day, we don't even know the full number, said Albert Fox Kahn, Executive Director of Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, a nonprofit that opposes the use of facial recognition by law enforcement. Quote, you can have people who are being sent to jail wrongly who never knew that facial recognition played a role in their arrest. The crimes Parks had allegedly committed occurred at a Hampton Inn in Woodbridge, New Jersey, on January 26, 2019. Local police responded to an alleged shoplifting incident and spoke with a suspect who gave them a Tennessee driver's license. When the officers ran the license through with dispatch, they came back with no results. It was a fake ID. After being confronted by the police, the suspect ran out of the hotel, got into a car, and sped off, according to the police report. While fleeing, he hit a concrete pillar and a police car and almost struck an officer. Two eyewitnesses to the crime told police that the photo on the fake Tennessee driver's license matched the person they'd seen. With that, police sent the photo off for facial recognition scanning. The scan compared the Tennessee ID photo to a police database of faces, police said, returned a, quote, high-profile comparison to a picture of Najir Parks. To this day, Parks and his lawyer don't know what photo of him the system scanned, or where it came from. With seemingly no other evidence, according to the police report, officers in the Woodbridge Police Department, Middlesex County Assistant Prosecutor Peter Nastasi, and Woodbridge, Woodbridge Municipal Court Judge David Stahl signed off on a warrant for Park's arrest.
Two years after her son was arrested, Patricia Park stood in the kitchen of his apartment, staring at an enlarged printout of the suspect's fake ID. He looks nothing like him, nothing like him, she said. People have a saying, all black people look the same. That's the first thing that came to my mind when I'd seen this photo, because it looks nothing like my son. Najir noted that the suspect appears to be wearing earrings. Quote, all you had to do was look at my ears and notice I don't even have ear piercings, he said. At the time the crimes were being committed, Parks was at a Western Union 30 miles away from the Hampton Inn, sending money to his fiancée. He happened to take a picture of the receipt's tracking number that corrobor corroborated his story. Still, it took nearly a year for the charges against him to be dropped. The person who actually committed the crimes is still at large. Parks told CNN that after the charges were dropped, he never received an apology. Quote, I've never heard anything from anybody else. No, we're sorry. We could have went about it a different way, says Parks. Nothing. Najir Parks isn't the only person who's been arrested thanks to a supposed facial recognition match that wasn't. There's also Robert Williams and Michael Oliver, two black men arrested in Detroit based in part on bad facial recognition results. Their cases were later dropped too. Williams, joined by the ACLU, recently filed a federal suit against the city of Detroit. Experts say examples of facial recognition being presented as evidence to make arrests are rare. What's more common is police not mentioning to the defense that facial recognition was used at all, according to a report by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. The Woodbridge Police Department and the Middlesex Prosecutor's Office did not respond to questions on whether it was still their practice to use facial recognition matches as probable cause in arrests. There do not appear to be any local, statewide, or federal regulations in place that would prevent them from doing so. Some police departments, government agencies, and facial recognition vendors have cautioned that purported facial recognition matches should be used only as investigative tools, not as evidence. Facial recognition, quote, remains an investigative lead only, FBI Deputy Assistant Director Kimberly Del Greco testified to Congress in 2017. The candidates must be further reviewed by specialized face examiners and or the relevant investigators. Detroit's police manual stipulates the facial recognition match is meant to be used only as an investigative aid and is not to be considered a positive identification of a subject. However, according to Claire Garvey, a senior associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law, even in jurisdictions that claim to use facial recognition matches only to launch investigations, the distinction between investigative tool and evidence can be a blurry one for police to follow. The police, quote, are in no way informed on what constitutes sufficient additional investigative steps, Garvey said. Although we don't know for sure what the Woodbridge Police Department's policies around facial recognition are, the New York City Police Department has an explicit policy stipulating that there must be, quote, other corroborating evidence, along with facial recognition matches, to allow for an arrest. In practice, that additional investigative step could be as simple as getting a witness to say that a photo obtained from a facial recognition match looks like the suspect. 
For example, according to court filings, one NYPD officer texted a witness a photo of a single face obtained in a facial recognition search, along with a message, Is this the guy? When the witness said yes, police made the arrest. Parks is now suing those involved in his arrest for violating his civil rights and intentional infliction of emotional distress. None of the defendants listed on Parks' lawsuit responded to a request for comment. In March, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss the case, which is still ongoing. Judge Stahl, who is not listed as a defendant, also did not respond to a request for comment. Parks said he is still tormented by what happened to him. Quote, you took being comfortable away from me. I see police. I'm automatically shaken up, Parks told CNN. You proved to me that you can lock me up for anything, and there's nothing I can do about it. Next up, it's a piece written by Maya Niguel Hoskin. This is published at Zora.medium.com. We don't need allies. We need abolitionists. While following the Derek Chauvin trial, I've noticed one common theme that also struck me immediately following the gruesome killing of George Floyd. White people speaking out against racism after the fact. It seems that a healthy handful of white folks wait to express their outrage and disgust over racial injustice after a highly publicized or sensationalized tragedy takes place. Often after a new hashtag begins trending on social media, a variety of tweets and posts speaking out against anti-blackness and anti-black violence soon follow. Which I suppose is fine, but very few extend far beyond their comfort zone in their advocacy efforts. This is not to say that allyship in any form is not helpful, but it's time to start being clear about what is needed and what ultimately perpetuates white supremacy and further insulates white guilt. Let's be honest. To combat anti-blackness in America, we don't need allies. We need abolitionists. According to the Anti-Oppression Network, allyship involves engaging in efforts that emphasize social justice, inclusion, and human rights by members of an in-group to advance an oppressed or marginalized outgroup's interests. When I googled black allies, I found pages filled with articles soliciting the participation of whites to join various social justice efforts. To be exact, almost 130,000 results populated my screen. Some articles made a strong argument for the importance and need of white allies, while others provided detailed instructions on becoming an effective ally. Conceptually, allyship sounds like it should be the kryptonite to anti-blackness. Yet time and time again, we are reminded that it is not. Allyship is a vague term, and its ambiguity can lead to various interpretations of what it means to be one. On the surface, it could be assumed that allyship includes any of the following behaviors. 1 express their concerns and frustrations about racism on social media. 2. Speak out against anti-blackness in real time. 3. Be mindful of using racially inclusive language. 4. Be familiar with some of the current and historic forms of oppression that have marginalized blacks. 
Five, use their racial privilege to advocate for blacks. While these are great suggestions, they only represent the tip of the iceberg in addressing a much more complex issue. Bigger than that, someone who might come across one of these how-to-be-a-white-ally guides can pick and choose what they feel comfortable doing and call it a day. That might involve engaging in all of the above behaviors, or only one. This still leaves a considerable amount to question. How often does an ally engage in these behaviors? On Mondays and Tuesdays? Or do Saturdays and every other Sunday suffice? In other words, at the bare minimum, Someone who is white can support their black coworker after experiencing racism and walk away feeling as though their allyship itch has been scratched. Or repost a few well-written articles on anti-blackness, participate in a Black Lives Matter march, and consider themselves an ally. Yes, it's great to support marches that promote equity and disagree with racism by verbally supporting black folks, But when well-intentioned white people who want to make a significant impact in addressing racism conflate engaging in these behaviors with dismantling anti-blackness, they can walk away with a distorted and inflated sense of accomplishment that absolves them from the continued work that is genuinely needed. Of course, there is no cut-and-dry way to address anti-black racism, but just as racism exists and thrives systemically, and and systematically to oppress the black community. How we address anti-blackness must also be systemic and systematic. Audre Lorde once said, quote, The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. But for centuries, we have tried to do just that in the fight against racism. Yes, some strides have been made to create new laws that no longer openly discriminate against blacks, Yet some of these efforts remain incomplete. For example, federal laws were put into place to protect people of color from discrimination in the workplace after black activists secured revolutionary civil rights legislation in the 1960s. Federal agencies were then tasked with holding people and institutions accountable for engaging in discrimination. Sadly, these efforts fell flat because lawmakers never fully funded these agencies and even provided exemptions, allowing many employers to continue to discriminate with little accountability. As a result, millions of workers of color continue to experience racial discrimination in employment and wages. Racist language also still appears in some home deeds across America. It's clear that anti-blackness does not only exist on social media or only in misdirected racial jokes at the water cooler while at work. Anti-black racism is interwoven throughout the fabric of American culture. White allies must move beyond hashtags in DEI professional development training to begin to scratch its surface effectively. The term abolish is defined as, quote, end the observance or effect of something, such as a law, to completely do away with something, And an abolitionist is someone who supports and actively engages in efforts towards this end. This is a different perspective than allyship, which focuses mainly on working within the current system to promote equity. In contrast, abolitionists draw more from Audre Lorde's sentiments and focus on dismantling current oppressive systems to replace them with more equitable and inclusive structures. In an ideal world, 
Everyone would be against white supremacy and anti-blackness. We would gather around a campfire, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. But unfortunately, that is not our current reality. And until it is, the fight against anti-blackness might not always be pretty or nice. It might sometimes require that people become upset with us and that we have to face discomfort in the face on numerous occasions. At times, it might be ugly, messy, and unpleasant. After all, the process of dismantling and rebuilding anything is rarely ever neat and clean. But when we look back at our blood, sweat, and tears, it will be worth it. None of this will be simple. White supremacy, anti-blackness, it's embedded in our system. It's been embedded in our system for hundreds of years. It's not going to be simple to evict it from the systems that run our economy and our society. It's not going to be simple to transform our cultural habits and our previous acceptance of racists and racism uh, and, and do away with it. It's going to be a challenge and it's going to be difficult, but it's not going to be impossible. These are not magic things. These are not ingrained things. These are not quote-unquote natural order of anything. These are systems and these are feelings and these are expressions that are human, that were built by humans and perpetuated by humans and can be dismantled and uh, ended and abolished by humans. That goes for all kinds of different problems. Sure, there's complex problems. There's lots of complexity to problems out there. That does not make them uns unsolvable. It just makes the solution a bit more complex. Next up, we have a piece from Steve Saleda at stevesaleda.com. That is S-T-E-V-E-S-A-L-A-I-T-A. This is called Palestine is not a quagmire. Palestine is not a minefield. Palestine is not complicated. Palestine is not a morass. Palestine is not tricky. Palestine is not a quagmire. Palestine is not almost impossible to navigate. Israel systemically abuses millions of Palestinians simply because they're not what the state defines as Jewish. Israel came into existence through a massive program of ethnic cleansing that continues into the present. Israel prevents millions of Palestinians from returning to their ancestral cities and villages. Israel doesn't allow those whom remain the right of free movement. Israel is central to an ongoing project of Western imperialism. Appraise Israel's position in the world and you'll always find it aligned with forces of plunder and accumulation. Israel is a fundamentally racist entity, an ethno-supremacist settler colony, if you prefer, ruthlessly devoted to conquest and domination. 
The notion of Palestine as doggedly complicated is a spectacular deceit. Palestine is a living nation with a discrete history. Its people struggle for a future liberated of the misery imposed for decades by an insatiable colonizer. Palestinians need freedom. The conditions in which that freedom can exist are clear and tangible. Dismantling a system of juridical inequality enforced at the barrel of a gun and replacing it with a polity invested in the well-being of all citizens. That polity would honor the right of return for refugees and eliminate strictures on movement and participation based on religious and or ethnic identity. There's nothing complicated about it. Describing Palestine as perplexing or troublesome offers no benefit to the discourse. It obfuscates a clear distinction between victim and aggressor. It imagines the audience as incapable of comprehending straightforward concepts of justice and restitution. It is an act of cruelty to people often maimed, imprisoned, and murdered in a vigorous struggle for freedom. More than anything, it manifests a kind of exegetic cowardice. To what end does the speaker describe Palestine as complicated as a quagmire? To implicate Palestinians in their own suffering, and to absolve Israel of demonstrable barbarity. The absolution needn't happen explicitly, it needn't be intentional, but absolution is the effect of this cryptic diction. We see it whenever a star politician boasting socialist credentials suddenly transforms into a dissembling clod or an outright dick when the subject of Israel arises. The criticism comes quickly followed, as always, by the rationalizations. Quote, there's no simple answer. Quote, that's the best response we can hope for. Quote, to be fair, the issue is really difficult. Being fair requires more than an affinity for cliché. Deeming condemnation of Israel, or better yet, Zionism, difficult or intimidating exonerates the politician of cowardice. Palestine's freedom is a momentous moral issue that deserves nothing less than decisive support. We're inclined to view the politician's mousiness as pragmatic, they have to worry about elections. They're obligated to pander. This not only absolves, absolves the politician of cowardice, but of intellectual agency. They're talking nonsense, but they can't possibly believe it. Their own rhetoric is unreliable. If we insist on being fair to the politician, then it seems important to extend the same grace to other demographics. What about the politician's constituents or the general audience? Do they not deserve any of the honesty they've been promised? Must their finite energy be taken up haggling with their own heroes, begging for recognition from the luminaries who claim to represent them? Or what about the Palestinian people themselves? Is it not unfair that they continue to suffer a military occupation lavishly funded by the dissembling politician? Is it not doubly unfair that the politician derived power by pretending to care about them only to retreat into the usual business of forgetting? Let's abandon this language of being fair to politicians. 
When it comes to maintaining the dignity of Palestine's national liberation movement, antagonism is the only viable sensibility. I don't mean antagonism of an oratorical variety, but as a subject position. A relentless focus on prioritizing the downtrodden above the bourgeois ambitions of social climbers in the West. Quote, you can't get elected in the United States without sucking up to Israel, screams the advocate of realism. It's long past time for this bit of common wisdom to disappear. Aspiring politicians may oblige themselves to systemic norms, but we suffer no such obligation. Even where true, though, it isn't our problem. I don't give a single damn if my advocacy for the colonized disrupts somebody's political aspirations. The goal is to liberate Palestine, not to seat more charlatans and chicken shits in Congress. On this note, let's also drop the pretense exceedingly popular among blue-check radicals on social media that these ersatz socialists, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders especially, have betrayed their leftist supporters. Sanders by campaigning vigorously for Joe Biden and ingratiating himself to party bosses, and Ocasio-Cortez by transforming from socialist dynamo into a bumbling liberal Zionist. They betrayed nothing but the ahistorical delusions of a pundit class trying to cash in on fantasies of influence. Sanders never pretended he'd do anything but champion the party, and Ocasio-Cortez began dissimulating about Palestine before even winning her first election. I know because I criticized both of them from the outset for their weak politics, which were fully visible for anyone who cared to see them, and got dragged all over the internet. It's unpleasant to see self-identified radicals boost every new savior appended to the Democratic Party, only to pull a sanctimonious self-congratulatory switcheroo after dissent has become legible. For example, behave as liberal disciplinarians when it's beneficial, and then as principled critics when liberal discipline is out of favor. The tardiness, like the naivete preceding it, is calibrated to the accumulation of clout. Politics not as virtue, but self-indulgence. The only thing anyone gets out of being correct from the outset is an undeserved reputation for crankiness. The Savior always capitulates by design. The Savior is a creation of the very culture he purports to transcend. A sincere commitment to Palestinian liberation precludes upward mobility in the U.S. political system. Upward mobility always prevails. Calling Palestine a quagmire facilitates the upward mobility. Palestine is complicated only insofar as it inconveniences devotees of American exceptionalism. On its own, detached from the logic of electoralism, Palestine is a collective responsibility, coherent and unbounded. We cannot make Palestine intelligible to people obliged by political convention to abandon it. Before they became political metaphors, morass and quagmire were strictly geographical terms, denoting swampland hostile to development and most forms of agriculture. The notion of Palestine as a quagmire provided an important dimension to early Zionism, which conceptualized the Holy Land as marshy and barren. Quote, Drain the swamp is now associated with Donald Trump, but for centuries it served as a colonial rallying cry, first in North America and then in Palestine. 
Transforming these promised lands into something productive would be a difficult task, and undertaking nothing less than divine, and couldn't be left to unindustrious natives. The settlers on both continents built roads and cities, planted new flora, and extracted resources from the ground, and in the process, destroyed the natural environment. And now Palestine has again become a swampy trope in the colonialist lexicon. Palestine is not complicated, though. The quagmire comes into existence precisely where the fantasy of American salvation begins. And now the uh, summary of a report published by Human Rights Watch at hrw.org. The report is titled, A Threshold Crossed. Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution About 6.8 million Jewish Israelis and 6.8 million Palestinians live today between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, an area encompassing Israel and the Occupied Palestinian Territory, OPT, the latter made up of the West Bank including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. Throughout most of this area, Israel is the sole governing power. In the remainder, it exercises primary authority alongside limited Palestinian self-rule. Across these areas, and in most aspects of life, Israeli authorities methodically privilege Jewish Israelis and discriminate against Palestinians. Laws, policies, and statements by leading Israeli officials make plain that the objective of maintaining Jewish-Israeli control over demographics, political power, and land has long guided government policy. In pursuit of this goal, authorities have dispossessed, confined, forcibly separated, and subjugated Palestinians by virtue of their identity to varying degrees of intensity. In certain areas as described in this report, these deprivations are so severe that they amount to the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Several widely held assumptions, including that the occupation is temporary, that the, quote, peace process will soon bring an end to Israeli abuses, that Palestinians have meaningful control over their lives in the West Bank and Gaza, and that Israel is an egalitarian democracy inside its borders, have obscured the reality of Israel's entrenched discriminatory rule over Palestinians. Israel has maintained military rule over some portion of the Palestinian population for all but six months of its 73-year history. It did so over the vast majority of Palestinians inside Israel from 1948 and until 1966. From 1967 until the present, it has militarily ruled over Palestinians in the OPT, including East Jerusalem. By contrast, it has since its founding governed all Jewish Israelis, including settlers in the OPT since the beginning of the occupation in 1967, under its more rights-respecting civil law. For the past 54 years, Israeli authorities have facilitated the transfer of Jewish Israelis to the OPT and granted them a superior status under the law as compared to Palestinians living in the same territory when it comes to civil rights and 
access to land, and freedom to move, build, and confer residency rights to close relatives. While Palestinians have a limited degree of self-rule in parts of the OPT, Israel retains primary control over borders, airspace, the movement of people and goods, security, and the registry of the entire population, which in turn dictate such matters as legal status and eligibility to receive identity cards. A number of Israeli officials have stated clearly their intent to maintain this control in perpetuity and backed it up through their actions, including continued settlement expansion over the course of the decades-long, quote, peace process. Unilateral annexation of additional parts of the West Bank, which the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to carry out, would formalize the reality of systematic Israeli domination and oppression that has long prevailed without changing the reality that the entire West Bank is occupied territory under the international law of occupation, including East Jerusalem, which Israel unilaterally annexed in 1967. International criminal law has developed two crimes against humanity for situations of systematic discrimination and repression, apartheid and persecution. Crimes against humanity stand among the most odious crimes in international law. The international community has over the years detached the term apartheid from its original South African context, developed a universal legal prohibition against its practice, and recognized it as a crime against humanity with definitions provided in the 1973 International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid, known as the Apartheid Convention, and the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, ICC. The crime against humanity of persecution also set out in the Rome Statute the intentional and severe deprivation of fundamental rights on racial, ethnic, and other grounds grew out of the post-World War II trials and constitutes one of the most serious international crimes of the same gravity as apartheid. The State of Palestine is a state party to both the Rome Statute and the Apartheid Convention. In February 2021, the ICC ruled that it had jurisdiction over serious international crimes committed in the entirety of the OPT, including East Jerusalem, which would include the crimes against humanity of apartheid or persecution committed in that territory. In March 2021, the ICC Office of Prosecutor announced the opening of a formal investigation into the situation in Palestine. The term apartheid has increasingly been used in relation to Israel in the OPT, but usually in a descriptive or comparative non-legal sense, and often to warn that the situation is heading in the wrong direction. In particular, Israeli, Palestinian, U.S., and European officials, prominent media commentators, and others have asserted that if Israel's policies and practices towards Palestinians continued along the same trajectory, the situation, at least in the West Bank, would become tantamount to apartheid. Some have claimed that the current reality amounts to apartheid. Few, however, have conducted a detailed legal analysis based on the international crimes of apartheid or persecution. In this report, Human Rights Watch examines the extent to which that threshold has already been crossed in certain of the areas where Israeli authorities exercise control. 
that was just the summary of this report. Once again, this report is called A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. It's released April 27, 2021, and you can find it at hrw.org. Next, we have a piece from Caitlin Johnstone at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. I saw a line in a recent New Yorker article about America's endless wars, and it's been rattling around in my head ever since. Quote, In Syria, Mackenzie visited the Green Village, a community of decrepit apartment blocks near a bombed-out oil facility that served as the operational headquarters for the final push to erase the caliphate in 2019. These days, the only military action there is from the U.S. forces firing a 155mm howitzer twice a week into the surrounding desert, at no specific target. Quote, Just to say we're here, one officer told me. U.S. forces firing a 155mm howitzer twice a week into the surrounding desert at no specific target, just to say we're here. Tell me that's not the sexiest line you have ever read in your entire life. The poetical beauty, the ennui, the oh-so-relatable existential ache. Oh, God, I need a cigarette. I mean, it just hits on so many different levels. Could you ask for a better snapshot of life within the soulless U.S. war machine than a small cast of Bakitian soldiers waiting around near a bombed-out oil facility for a good doe who never arrives? Firing heavy artillery rounds into the desert twice a week for no reason whatsoever? You just want to hang it in an ornate wooden frame with the caption, Your tax dollars at work, ladies and gents. And then shove it so far up Tom Cotton's personal anatomy that it takes an entire emergency room team to extract it. And isn't it such a wonderfully concrete, in-your-face iteration of the meaningless struggle so many of us are going through in this decaying fuster-cluck of end-stage metastatic global capitalism? Firing a 155mm howitzer twice a week into the surrounding desert at no specific target just to say we're here is simply the military's version of working at a desk 40 hours a week doing essentially nothing other than making the boss and the shareholders a tiny bit richer than they already were. Working to pay the bills so you can afford the car you drive to work and the food and the shelter which sustains your ability to work is no less pointless and absurd than what these soldiers were doing in the Green Village in 2019. If you think about it, aren't we all in our own way firing a 155mm howitzer twice a week into the surrounding desert at no specific target, just to say we're here? Lost and despondent in the wilderness, boxing with shadows, firing giant guns at imaginary enemies, watching our expensive artillery shells disappear into the emptiness and wondering why it hurts to live. Screaming a loud, violent noise into the abyss just to show we exist and then seeing the abyss roll its eyes like an annoyed teenager and return its attention to its iPhone. We are such silly, confused little ape mutants. We could be using these giant brains we just evolved to create a chill, harmonious world where everyone has enough 
and we work in collaboration with each other and our ecosystem, where creativity has space to flourish and art gushes from our heads like the air we exhale. Instead, we're coasting to Armageddon under the thumb of an empire that pours its wealth and resources into an endlessly expanding worldwide military campaign while impoverishing its people at home and keeping them in line with an increasingly violent and militarized police force. We could have paradise on earth. There's not one single valid reason why we cannot. Instead, we're letting governments controlled by a few idiotic sociopaths wave nuclear weapons at one another in the name of an imaginary god called unipolarity. Instead, we're letting ourselves be pressed into an absurd competition-based model where we must step on our neighbor's head just to keep our own above water while destroying the environment we depend on for survival. Instead, we're firing 155mm howitzer twice a week into the surrounding desert at no specific target, just to say we're here. This world is so silly. So beautifully, insanely, bittersweet cup of extinction noodles silly. We hurdle on a spinning rock we do not understand, through a universe we do not understand, made of particles we do not understand, and we behold one another in a field of consciousness we do not understand. And we shrug. God, I love us. I love us so much. I really hope we make it. Next up, a piece by Norman Solomon, published at zcom, Z-C-O-M-M, dot org. When I met a seven-year-old girl named Guljuma at a refugee camp in Kabul a dozen years ago, she told me that bombs fell early one morning while she slept at home in southern Afghanistan's Helmand Valley. With a soft, matter-of-fact voice, Guljuma described what happened. Some people in her family died. She lost an arm. Troops on the ground didn't kill Guljuma's relatives and leave her to live with only one arm. The U.S. Air War did. There's no good reason to assume the air war in Afghanistan will be over when, according to President Biden's announcement, all U.S. forces will be withdrawn from that country. What Biden didn't say was as significant as what he did say. He declared that, quote, U.S. troops, as well as forces deployed by our NATO allies and operations partners, will be out of Afghanistan before September 11, and we will not stay involved in Afghanistan militarily. But President Biden did not say that the United States will stop bombing Afghanistan. What's more, he pledged that, quote, we will keep providing assistance to the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces a declaration that actually indicates a tacit intention to, quote, stay involved in Afghanistan militarily. And while the big type headlines and prominent themes of media coverage are filled with flat-out statements that the U.S. war in Afghanistan will end come September, the fine print coverage says otherwise. The banner headline across the top of the New York Times homepage during much of Wednesday proclaimed, quote, Withdrawal of U.S. troops in Afghanistan will end longest American war. But buried in the 32nd paragraph of a story headed 
Biden to withdraw all combat troops from Afghanistan by September 11. The Times reported, quote, Instead of declared troops in Afghanistan, the United States will mostly rely on a shadowy combination of clandestine special operations forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives to find and attack the most dangerous Qaeda or Islamic State threats, current and former American officials said. Matthew Ho, a Marine combat veteran who in 2009 became the highest-ranking U.S. official to resign from the State Department in protest of the Afghanistan war, told my colleagues at the Institute for Public Accuracy on Wednesday, quote, Regardless of whether the 3,500 acknowledged U.S. troops leave Afghanistan, the U.S. military will still be present in the form of thousands of special operations and CIA personnel in and around Afghanistan, through dozens of squadrons of manned attack aircrafts and drones stationed on land bases and on aircraft carriers in the region, and by hundreds of cruise missiles on ships and submarines. We scarcely hear about it, but the U.S. air war on Afghanistan has been a major part of Pentagon operations there, and for more than a year the U.S. government hasn't even gone through the motions of disclosing how much of that bombing has occurred. Quote, We don't know because our government doesn't want us to, diligent researchers Medea Benjamin and Nicholas Davies wrote last month. From January 2004 until February 2020, the U.S. military kept track of how many bombs and missiles it dropped on Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, and published those figures in regular monthly air power summaries, which were readily available to journalists and the public. But in March 2020, the Trump administration abruptly stopped publishing U.S. air power summaries, and the Biden administration has so far not published any either. The U.S. war in Afghanistan won't end just because President Biden and U.S. news media tell us so. As Guljuma and countless other Afghan people have experienced, troops on the ground aren't the only measure of horrific warfare. No matter what the White House and the headlines say, U.S. taxpayers won't stop subsidizing the killing in Afghanistan until there is an end to the bombing and special operations that remain shrouded in secrecy. And finally, this episode is a piece by Michael Safi. This is published at TheGuardian.com. Conflicts since start of U.S. war on terror have displaced 37 million people. Conflicts with U.S. military involvement have displaced at least 37 million people since the beginning of the, quote, war on terror nearly two decades ago, a report has estimated. The invasion of Iraq and the decades of instability that have followed the country have uprooted at least 9.2 million so far, the costliest of the eight U.S. military operations that were included in the report by Brown University's Costs of War Project. The paper focused on conflicts since the September 11 terrorist attacks in which the U.S. initiated armed combat, as in Iraq or Afghanistan, contributed to its escalation as in Libya and Syria, or participated through drone strikes, battlefield advisors, arms sales, and other means, Yemen, Somalia, and the Philippines. Drawing on data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees 
and the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, among others. The project estimated 7.1 million people had been displaced in Syria, 5.3 million in Afghanistan, 4.4 million in Yemen, 4.2 million in Somalia, 3.7 million in Pakistan, 1.7 million in the Philippines, and 1.2 million in Libya. The framing of the report did not suggest the U.S. was solely responsible for the vast displacement. Quote, Causation always involves a multiplicity of combatants and other powerful actors, centuries of history, and large-scale political, economic, and social forces, they said. For conflicts such as Syrian civil war, the study defined American involvement narrowly, tallying only those displaced in five Syrian provinces where U.S. forces have been active since 2014. Quote, a less conservative approach would include the displaced from all of Syria's provinces since the beginning of direct U.S. military operations in 2014, or as early as 2013, when the U.S. government began backing Syrian rebel groups, the paper said. This could take the total to between 44 million and 51 million, comparable to the scale of displacement in World War II. The conclusions of the report have been criticized by some researchers and commentators for not accounting for causes of displacement separate to U.S. intervention. For example, in Somalia, where the study notes, quote, displacement has shaped life for decades. Accurately counting displaced people is extremely difficult for international organizations fraught with physical danger and attempts by governments and other vested interests to influence the statistics for their own purposes. The report acknowledged the limitations and said it opted for the most conservative possible totals. It said an estimated 25.3 million people had returned since being displaced, but noted, quote, Return does not erase the trauma of displacement or mean that those displaced have returned to their original homes or to a secure life. The project's other research has estimated that more than 800,000 people have died in conflicts with U.S. involvement due to direct war violence, along with at least 335,000 civilians, and that the engagements have cost the U.S. Treasury an estimated $6.4 trillion. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. If you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. You can also hear this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. The, the administration has used 9-11, has used it to scare people and to do what it wanted. Uh, what it wanted was to move troops into the Middle East where the oil is. It wanted to set up military bases in the Middle East, and it used 9-11 as a wonderful opportunity. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, going to uh, do anything about terrorism. It's very obvious now to simply f follow the events of 9-11 by bombing Afghanistan did not reduce terrorism. In fact, it increased the possibility of terrorism. We have, by our actions in the Middle East since 9-11, largely increased the number of terrorists in the Middle East and in the world. 
because we have antagonized so many people. When you bomb people, you antagonize them. When you invade people, you antagonize them. You make enemies. You get people angry. And out of the anger of millions of people, a small number of them may become terrorists. So they've used 9-11. To me, that's the important truth about 9-11.